Well, good morning, church. And as Alan mentioned just a moment ago, this will be our last installment of this series called Amnesia. I think it's so timely for us as Christians to be reminded of who we are in Christ. I think that is one of uh, Satan's greatest works is to take away our identity on what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a a follower of Jesus Christ? And so uh, we come to this time uh, in our service every week where we get to hear from God and hear from his word. Uh, Because that's the most important thing this morning, I want to uh, invite you to engage the Word of God in a couple of ways. First of all, if you have a Bible, and there's some I know in the seat around you if you prefer a a paper copy of the Bible, is to engage the Word of God by looking up the Scripture and following along this morning. And as always, we love technology here, and so you can use your phone, your iPad, uh, your your tablet to download the Oakwood app and go to Sermon Notes inside the Oakwood app, and all the Scriptures and everything will be right there for you. You know, Satan is the author of confusion. Scripture tells us that. And I feel like, especially maybe in the last 10 years, 20 years, that he has been hard at work to confuse people about their identity. Sometimes not even they're they're just, just, just... you know, what they're, what they're doing and as they're going throughout life, but, but even just at their core, who they are as human beings, who they are as people. I feel like there's so much confusion about identities today. I mean, you think about it. We've got men who act and dress like women. We have women who act and dress like men. And we can all have feelings about that and, and talk about that, but I wonder if there's something even more concerning to God, and that would be this that we have Christians who don't act any different than non-Christians. That we have Christians that look and act just like the world. What the world values, we value. Well, the world says this this is the way to live your life. This is what's right and wrong. It's all relativistic. It's amoral. There's really no right or wrong. It's whatever feels good to you. Uh, the, the lines, if there are any anymore, can be blurred and moved, and it's just about you and what you want to do in your life. And to me, that sounds a lot like the world. And, and in essence, that's not who we are in Christ Jesus. And I, I think that's one of Satan's greatest ploys is to, to get us to forget that we suffer from this case of amnesia, that we forget who we are. One of the funny things about this series that, that I have enjoyed, of course, I always enjoy getting emails from you. When you, when you send me an email with um, feedback or encouragement, I just want you to know I, I, I read those emails and I appreciate that. I have enjoyed the amnesia jokes, okay? Uh, I, I enjoy it when I uh, come into the lobby a couple weeks ago and someone's like, man, I really enjoyed this series. Um, can't remember the name of it, but it's been really, really good. Oh, like, yeah. The series, yeah, and it's happened out in public a couple times. You know the series we've been in, it's been really, really good. I, man, for the life of me, I can't recall the name, but it's Amnesia. Oh, yeah, Amnesia. Yeah, yeah, I remember. And, but, no, I, I really appreciate that. And in week one, you know, we learned that when we are weak, we are strong. And, and what that really is, it's about our reliance on Christ Jesus. To understand that when we are weak, God's strength shows up big time. And that we need to be reliant on him in life. The second week, we, we studied a passage from 1 Peter. And, and 1 Peter tells us that we're living stones. We're the spiritual household being built up into God. We're, we're God's special possession. He even goes as far to call us a royal priesthood. 
I mean, what does a royal priesthood look like today? But that's who we are. That's, that's not what we do. It's who we are in Christ Jesus. The third week we talked about sin and we talked about how sometimes we allow sin in our life and it, become a strong, it can become a stronghold. And how God's power demolishes, just diminishes, just wipes away all of the strongholds in our life. And it's by his power and by his grace and to his glory. And because of that, as Christians, we are called to be thought captors. That we take every thought captive and we bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then last week, we understood about how we are overcomers. More than conquerors in this life because of the power of Christ. That resurrection power living in us. Folks, this isn't, this isn't just what we do. This is the essence of who we are because we call ourselves Christians, disciples, Christ followers. And it's in that spirit I bring to you again today, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is the essence of being a Christian. We're no longer living for ourselves, but it is Christ living in and through us. The life I now live in this body, in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up. He sacrificed for me. And because of that, I also want to share, as we begin this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's a, a Christian, a Christ follower, the new creation has come. The old sinful life has gone. The new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation as believers. That God was reconciling the world to himself in, in Christ and not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconcil reconciliation to God. We are, who are we? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his representatives. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in, in him we might be who? We, we, might, we might become the righteousness of God. We have the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, and we become the righteousness of God for the lost and dying world to see. Folks, that's not what we do. That's who we are in Christ Jesus. We just have to believe that. We have to put our faith in that. We have to accept that. As our identity. Several things I want us to learn together uh, this morning as we close this series. And the first thing is this. Identity precedes action. Identity precedes action. It is important to know who we are. Because many times who we are as a person determines what we do. You decide what you are going to be. And then your actions have this tendency to line up with that. In fact, it's been said this way, the more you tell someone who, you, who they are, the less you have to tell them what to do. If you just remind them who they are, the less you'll have to tell them what to do. And, and that makes sense if you think about it. 
There's really two parts to this, I feel like. I feel like there's this innate part, and I feel like there's this learned experience part of our identities in Christ Jesus. The innate part, I feel like, is the Holy Spirit's part. I don't know what it was like for you, but when I became a Christian, man, I felt it from the inside out. I remember that night at church camp. I remember that message. I remember answering that call of invitation and, and walking down in that outdoor chapel, the, the rocks, and, and walking down to the front in tears, repentant of my sin and wanting to turn away and to be different, to, to not crucify Christ with my sin any longer. I remember walking across Camp Sooner's campus in Pink, Oklahoma, all the way to Cabin 2 where we stayed that night. And me and a pack of my friends all just, just, just making a pact, making bonding and making a pact together. We don't want to go home and live like we have. We want to be different. We want to light this world on fire for Christ Jesus. So blown away by his grace and his love for us. I remember, I remember as my identity was changing those feelings there. I remember what it was like to, to come home to church and to share my decision with others and, and to be baptized in the watery grave of baptism. I remember what that felt like. I remember what it felt like getting out of that watery grave of baptism and walking back here and taking communion for the very first time and being, being taught what those elements mean. I remember my discipleship experience walking with Christ immediately. I'm into the Word, and for some reason, I understand it better at 12 years old than I had ever understood it before. I felt like Christ and His Spirit was heavy on me, guiding me and directing me. There were things I couldn't do anymore. I used to do those things and not feel guilty at all. And now, I, I, I mean, they, re, they repulsed me. I can't go back to that. You see, there's this innate work. As we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit does, and it's supernatural. And it feels different to every Christian, but I feel like we all have that moment. And some of you are shaking your heads right now because you know exactly what I mean. You remember that moment when you really, truly gave yourself to Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit was invited into your life and began to do his work of sanctification, making you more like Jesus. And it was awesome. Some of us need to be reminded of that. And reminded that that work doesn't just happen at conversion. It continues through our life. There's this innate part. But there's also this learned experience part. It's the part where we're reading the word of God and we're allowing it to dwell in us richly. We're allowing the word of God to, to look into us like a mirror. And to peer into this mirror and to see what does God have to say about things. There's this part of Christian community where we learn from one another, where there's accountability one to another. There's this, there, there, there are so many different parts to this. There's the part of you plugging into ministry service and you're like, man, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel well equipped to do what you're asking me to do and to, and to serve these kids or to serve these teens or to serve other adults or to teach or or to work behind the scenes in this ministry. I just don't know. And then you just feel like, wow, God's power. God's using me in spite of me. That's how a preacher feels every Sunday morning. You see, it's through all these experiences that we find out who we are. And our identities are wrapped up in Christ Jesus. But let me tell you what we do sometimes. Sometimes as a church, we spend a lot more time telling people what to do than reminding them of who they are in Christ Jesus. And, and that's really the heart of this series is to be reminded. This, this isn't what we do. I mean, yes, the actions follow the heart. Don't get me wrong. But to some extent, it's just we need to just be reminded you are a Christian. You are a follower of Christ. 
And that means that things change. That means just like we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you are a new creation. The old stuff is gone. So let it be gone. Help usher it out. Take out the trash, right? And the newness of life has come. Identity precedes action. I want to look at a text this morning, Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Again, you can follow along in the app if you you have that up on your phone. But Matthew 16 is a very interesting passage because uh, this is a passage that many people are familiar with. You've probably read it before. But it's a passage where Jesus, who's the Son of God, he asks his disciples about his identity. He, he asked them this very, very important, potent question that to us, we're like, that's kind of weird. I mean, you do realize it's Matthew chapter 16. <laughs> They've been walking with Jesus for about 12 chapters now. Why would Jesus ask this now? There, there's a point. Jesus is brilliant. We're going to study this passage this morning together. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. It says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We're going to pause there for just a second before we read the rest of the passage to understand something. We read something like this and we're like, oh, okay, so Jesus and his disciples went to the region of Caesarea Philippi. It sounds very biblical, right? Somewhere over there in the Holy Land, Caesarea Philippi, and if we we were really thinking about where this was, we'd say, Caesarea kind of sounds like Caesar. You know, like, like, okay, Caesar and Philippi, maybe Philip. So maybe this was a settlement that was named after a, a Caesar named Philip, perhaps, and that'd be a good deduction. Caesarea Philippi, and, and because of that, maybe it's, it's, a, it's, a, Roman, it's a Roman city, it's a, it's a Roman province, maybe it's, you know, and, and so it's got a lot of influences from paganism because it's, it's, it's Roman in nature. And, and, and as you look into this, and maybe you even look it up in the back of your Bible on one of those Bible map things, you're trying to see where this is. There's even more that you can find out if you looked it up in a Bible dictionary. You know, Bible dictionary defines places and people and, and times and it explains so much about the word of Scripture. And Caesarea Philippi was actually one of the centers of pagan worship. What was unique about Caesarea Philippi is it had this wall, this cliff, and it had all of these caves in this cliff. One of the interesting things that happened there at Caesarea Philippi is that one of the caves had water, like natural, beautiful spring water flowing out of it. And to pagans that were worshiping there, they believed that was coming from the underworld out to the earth. And so because of that, there was this beautiful spring with this glorious, clean water. And so they started worshiping, and they began this thing that you've probably heard of before called fertility cults and involved an enormous amount of sexual immorality, paganism, idol worship. I mean, it was a cesspool for all things that we would call even today gross and grotesque, and that was Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus and his disciples are journeying, and, and they get to this place. And this was one of those places that was kind of like the red light district. You did not want to be caught there, especially as a follower of Christ, especially as a Christian. 
Or, or even if you were a Jew and you were one that was worshiping God, you would not go to Caesarea Philippi. You would not associate with Caesarea Philippi. You would definitely not want to visit there and get caught there. And yet Jesus takes the disciples there. So there, there's a little background into where they're going here. And Jesus comes to this region. And what does he ask his disciples when they get there? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That reference, Son of Man, is what Jesus used to, uh, to reference himself several times in, in Scripture. He says, who do people say that I am? In verse 14, they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, but what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you, you disciples, you people that follow me around for two years now, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then we skip down to verse 21, and it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You see, identity precedes action because it has an expectation with it. Identity precedes action because it has an expectation with it. I mean, this isn't hard to understand to some degree. If you would come to me and you would say, I identify, uh, part of my identity is a firefighter, then I would think that, that part of your action would be that you are one that cooks meat. No, no, that you, you, are, one, you are one that gazes at stars. No, no, you're one that, if you're a firefighter, you're one who fights fires, right? You, you put out fires. If you came to me and you said, my identity Part of my identity is that I am a juggler. I would say you probably juggle, right? Do you get the game now? Pilots fly, right? They fly, fly airplanes, right? Bankers, this is a hard one. Bankers bank. They bank, okay? <laughs> yeah, they do stuff with money. You know, bankers bank. Custodians, we would assume the custodians clean, right? Teachers would probably teach. Preachers would probably preach. And Christians would follow Christ. That's what Christians do. It's part of their identity of who they are. If you identify as a Christian, then you live your life. And the words that come out of your mouth and the, the thoughts that come into your mind follow Christ. That's, that's who we are. You see, Jesus, in verse 13, he starts out by asking them, who do people, who does the world say that I am? 
And the disciples give him answers. Oh, they think that you're a great prophet. Oh, you're John the, John the Baptist. Oh, you're still other prophets like Jeremiah. You know, the, the world thinks there's something different about you, Jesus. They, they think you, you might be holy. You might be a prophet of God. You, you're definitely a rabbi and a, and a teacher. The world identifies you as all of these things. And Jesus says, but that in essence is not who I am. I mean, yes, I am all of those things, but really, who am I? And then he changes the question in verse 15. He focuses in 13 on who do they, who do the people out there say that I am? And then he says, who do you? Disciples. Guys have been hanging out with me. You've been so close to me. We have done life together. Who do you, who do you say that I am? And it is Simon Peter that answers in verse 16, you are the Messiah. When he said that, it, it was an acknowledgement that you are the one we've been looking for for hundreds of years. You are the one that the whole Old Testament, all the prophecies about the coming Savior, the coming King, the Messiah, you are that person. I mean, I mean Peter gets it. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And you look at, at Jesus' response. What is, how does he respond to that? He says, blessed are you, Simon Peter. Because this is supernatural. You didn't just figure this out on your own. From just hanging out with me, this was actually revealed to you from my Father in heaven. That you would see me as Messiah and the Son of the living God. And then look at verse 18. Very interesting. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. I tell you that you are your name, Peter. And that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. If you actually look back into the Greek on this, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in, it says there that, and Jesus says, and I will tell you that you are your name. It's Petros. You are Petros. Some, some would say to pronounce it Petros. And it's capitalized in the Greek. It's reference to his name, Peter. I tell you that you are Peter. If you looked up Petros or Petros in the Greek, it means rock. That's what it means. And so Peter, just his name, means rock. And there it says in the plural there that it's Petros and it's capitalized in the Greek. And so he says, you are I'm telling you, I tell you that you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, and then when you get to the next rock in the scripture, it's lowercase in our translation into English, and it says, and on this rock, and it's Petra there, it's a derivative form, and it still means the same thing, it still means rock. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Man, I'm telling you what, Satan has done a number on this text. There are Christians who have argued about this text for hundreds of years. And you know what they're arguing over? The meaning of the word rock. You see, Catholics, they believe that, that he's referring, that Jesus is referring to Peter here as the rock. That he's going to build his church on Peter. That Peter is the rock, and because his name means rock, that he's going to build his church on Peter. And so that means that, that Peter is the first, the first pope, and 
And the, the, he's saying to Peter, hey, on you, Peter, you are the, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And, and then, you know, you get to Acts chapter 2, and he's, he's preaching, and, you know, the church is being established in Acts, and Peter's a big part of that. And, and so you have that Catholic view, and then you have this Protestant view, and the Protestants, well, they say, well, the church isn't built on any man. It's built on the rock of Christ Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation, and God is going to build his church on Jesus, not on a rock, and not on the rock of, of Peter the rock, but the rock of Jesus. And, and then, they, you know, they reference even back in First and Second Peter that Peter himself calls Jesus the cornerstone. And so, you know, and there's all this focus on, well, you know, rock, and does it mean Peter, does it mean this, and does it mean that, and how should we govern church and move forward as a church because of this passage. And I just think that the saint has really done, done a number on this text because that's not actually the main focus of this text and not the most important thing you're reading here. That's not the most important word in that verse. I believe the most important word in that verse is found near the end where he says, and he talks about the gates. The gates. You see, this whole time the believers are fighting over the meaning of the text, you skip out on the word gates. So let's talk about gates for a moment. You see, gates are a military weapon. Now let me explain what I mean. They're, they're a defensive weapon. So when you went to go fight a war, you did not want to fight a war in your city, in your town, in your territory. So the way they did this back in these times was they would build walls around the borders of their cities. Countries, you know, could, could do this. Nobody got that joke. That's okay. They built walls, border walls around with a gate to fortify it. And then they would send their soldiers and their battalions and all their military forces out to fight battles. Sometimes they would get, get out in a battle and they would, they would start getting their, their fannies whooped by someone else. Maybe it, was, maybe it was outnumbered. Maybe they just had more soldiers. Maybe sometimes they, they just made better decisions. It was strategic, but whatever. Sometimes they would get beat in the battle and then those battalions and those military forces would withdraw and sometimes they would withdraw back within the city gates. And they would do what? They would close the gates and they're hoping that those gates would keep the enemy out. Now, why is this so important? It's because if they got beyond the city gates, the whole kingdom is lost. But as long as those gates withstood the forces that would come against them, then they were safe behind the walls and they could hit the reset button, the reboot button, and they didn't penetrate the walls. They didn't come through the gates and penetrate the gates. And if the gates held firm, then they were protected and the kingdom was saved because they couldn't get in and kill the king and tear the kingdom apart. And so gates were a huge deal. That's why you, you see it referenced throughout Scripture many times. If you go to archaeological places and do some studies on history, you understand this idea of gates. Very, very important. And it's interesting here in verse 18 that we get so caught up in the rock part that sometimes we miss this gates part at the end of the Scripture because it talks about, listen to what Jesus says on this. After he builds his church on the rock, he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, will not overcome this church, will not overcome. These gates won't stand against the kingdom. 
These gates won't stand against God's soldiers and the sons of God going after Satan, backing Satan behind the gates, and even breaking into the gates and breaking into that kingdom. Satan counts on believers forgetting who they are as soldiers of Jesus Christ. And isn't it interesting here? That as Jesus is talking about his identity, he then turns it around and starts talking and reminding the disciples, and especially Peter, about our identity and who we are in Christ Jesus. You see, one thing that we need to understand is that we receive our identity by understanding clearly who Jesus is. We receive our identity by understanding clearly who Jesus is. This is why this confession that Peter makes is so important. This is the reason why in verse 17, Jesus says, man, Peter, you are blessed because you really understand, you really get who I am. I am the savior of the world. I am the son of God. I'm the long-awaited king of kings and lord of lords. I am the Messiah. And you understand that. You get that. And look what Jesus does here in the text. He says, now that you, Peter, have accurately defined my identity as the Messiah, I am now going to change your identity. And this is why it's so important that you must clearly understand who Jesus is. Because your very identity is wrapped up in what you will call and what you will say and what you will accept about Christ Jesus. He's not some side gig. He's not something you bring out on Sunday mornings, you put away the rest of the week. A relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing. And guess what? When you get to the end of your life, it's the only thing that matters. At that moment, it's the only relationship that matters. Is do you identify as a Christian one who would say that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, and Satan is hoping you will forget. That you'll have some kind of amnesia fit and forget who you are in Christ Jesus. But it's so important that not that you know of Jesus. There's, there's many people that know about Jesus. It's that fact that you know Jesus. Because you have accepted him as your Savior and Lord, and we receive our identity by understanding clearly who Jesus is. But the last thing this morning, identity precedes action, but every identity also comes with a mission. Identity precedes action, but every identity also comes with a mission. And Jesus gives you his. After he's identified by Peter as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, look at verse 21. Jesus gives it to us clear and plain. He says, in verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must do what? That he must go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You see, Jesus' identity wraps into this mission of saving the world. 
He's going to be crucified, and on the third day, he's going to come back to life. And he begins telling his disciples, this is what's going to happen. Here's the game plan. Here's the mission that goes with my identity as the Son of God. But he doesn't stop there. Peter receives this new identity and this mission because Peter is the great confessor of the identity of Jesus to the world. And Peter would be a strong and powerful tool in God's hands. He becomes a minister of the gospel. And we have things we read like Acts chapter 2 where Peter is preaching before a crowd in Jerusalem and thousands of people respond and accept Christ that day. Give their lives to Jesus Christ. It's Peter who shows up again in Acts chapter 10. It's Peter that keeps showing up in the book of Acts and even as you get to the end of the New Testament, writes a couple of letters called 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And in those letters we read that Peter didn't stop there in Jerusalem, but he went even into the ends of the earth. Peter's Identity was now a fully devoted, fully vested, all-in disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to be. And I want to remind you of that this morning, that you are a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Or we could use terminology like we did last week. You're a Bible-thumping, pew-jumping, Jesus-loving, devil-shoving, blood-bought, red-hot, soul-redeeming, shouting-screaming, overcoming child of God. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. But are you living your life by your identity? We're really concerned about identity theft today. Very concerned. We have multi-billion dollar companies that will lock your life. Because of identity theft. And what they do is they steal your name, they steal your social security number, some of your basic personal information, and basically they steal your money, they steal your stuff. You deed your house over to them, you didn't even realize it. They get your tax return, they file taxes on your behalf, and it's identity theft. We're all familiar with that. We, we, this, was, this wasn't a thing 15 years ago. Now everyone knows, you know, if I say identity theft today, you're like, oh yeah, I know what that is. Some of you have coverage on your homeowner's policy. You might not even know about it because you know who reads their homeowner's policy, right? But it's actually there's a whole page on your DEX page for your homeowners that has some form of identity theft protection if that should happen to you. It's a big deal. This is Satan's plan to destroy the mission of Jesus, is to steal the identity of Christians. We know this because of John 10.10. Jesus said this, The thief, he's talking about Satan here, the devil. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's his job. That's what he's about. And then Jesus says, but I've come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. Jesus is life-giving. Satan is taking away and stealing life. And he wants to steal your identity as a Christ follower. And so we end this series with a question. Who are you? Who are you? And does your life reflect who you are? Who are you? What will people say tomorrow if I went to your workplace and I said, who are they? 
What would they say? If we went to the sports field or the sports, to the courts, and I said, who are they? What would they say? If I went to your spouse or, or to your children or maybe to some of your family members, and I said, who are they? What would people say? And the question is, are you living your life by your identity? Because I think most of us in this room would say, yeah, Christian. I've accepted Christ. I love Jesus. Then for some of you, have you forgotten? Did you forget who you are? I wonder if that ever got said to you as a child. It sounds like a good talk that a dad would give, right? Son, you can't do that. Remember who you are. Daughter, you can't do that. Remember who you are. You see, folks, it's not just about what we do. It's about who we are, the essence of who we are. And that identity precedes the actions that we'll take in life. So my question for you this morning is, who are you? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? And if you've walked away and you said, yes, I've made that decision before, but I'm not living it. Everything in my life reflects something different. Are you willing to repent of your sins and turn and follow Christ Jesus? Not because of what you do, but because it's who you are in Christ.